and um, we'll do our lesson tonight on fulfilled prophecy. <coughs> Excuse me. Fulfilled prophecy. Um, I, I've been kind of preparing myself for this particular lesson. Um, I knew it was going to be a little different, so you'll have to bear with me on this one. Um, it just It's a lot of history, and so I was kind of you know, thinking a couple chapters back, I'm wondering if I will just skip through it or, but, you know, then I thought, you know, we need to take some of these uh, more bland topics with the exciting ones, amen, so we have to learn them. And I think, uh, I, I think it'll be helpful and I think that it'll be good for you to understand uh, really what the time, now, now what we're looking at today, uh, we know that right after Nehemiah completed the walls, you really don't have any more uh, biblical history being given as far as the, the books of the Bible are concerned. And so what you have here in Daniel chapter 11 is really a prophecy of many of the things that will take place in what we call the intertestamental period. And that's that period where there's silence, that 400 years uh, until finally John the Baptist comes on the scene and uh, Jesus Christ is born and so forth. And so it is important, I think, to understand this. A lot of people think that maybe the only way we can know uh, about that intertestamental period is through the Apocrypha. And those are history books. Some of them are history books. Some of them are just heretical books uh, that some people have placed in the middle of the Bible. But, uh, but Daniel chapter 11 is really the Lord giving us very uh, detailed information about what was going to happen. You've got to remember, he's talking to Daniel here. And he's talking about the future, but the exciting thing for us is as we're reading this and as we're studying it, we're looking back to it already being fulfilled. And so that's what the exciting thing about this is, and it shows us that God does, he is very accurate and, and his prophecies are, are, are perfect. Uh, they do not, uh, there's no error in them, amen? And that's how you know that they're true. Someone once said that all true history is his story, Amen is the Lord's story. <clears throat> and so we know now that, you know, in the, in the context that we're living in today, there's people trying to rewrite history, but what they can't do is rewrite his story. Amen. Like it, it just happened the way it happened. The Lord allowed it to happen the way it happened. And we see that in this chapter, uh, that particular uh, thought as well. And so, um, so I think becoming a student of scripture also requires us to somewhat to become a student of history as well. And I think it'd be good for us just to kind of, whatever that switch is you need to turn on today to get excited about maybe some of the historical things, uh, it'd be a good day for you to do that, amen? Because that's what this is going to be in this particular lesson. That's why I didn't put any blanks on your worksheet. Uh, I didn't know where I'd put the blanks in this lesson. So, so basically you can go to sleep if you want to, uh, but I encourage you not to. And uh, try to keep up, and I'll try to be clear as we go through this. So Daniel chapter 11 is basically um, a continuation of Daniel chapter 10. Uh, Daniel chapter 10, we had the angel come after Daniel was fasting for 21 days. And of course, he met the Son of God, and then the angel started speaking to him and talking about the Prince of Persia, talking about those demonic princes in, in the heavenlies that are actually battling for these nations and how that he brought that battle to light here. Now, verse number one, <coughs> excuse me, it says, uh, Also I, in the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm and to strengthen him. Now, who's the I that we're talking about here? You think, well, Daniel wrote the book. Yeah, but who's talking? The angel is talking. So it's not Daniel, it's the angel. And so what does that tell you here? So basically, verse number one should really be a part of what we studied in chapter 10 and talking about the heavenly battles. And I'll explain that to you here. And so uh, the spiritual battle, there's a spiritual battle going on. That's where it all starts. That's how this all kicks off. Number one, angel, an angel stood to confirm and strengthen Darius, the uncle of Cyrus, in the first year. And so you got to remember this. Now Cyrus was that king that gave the decree for Israel to go back to the promised land. And that was that very famous decree that was, pre, uh, that was prophesied way back in Isaiah over almost 100 years earlier. 
and yet it came to pass exactly like the Lord said. And so what he's saying here, this angel, is that he stood to confirm and strengthen Darius. Now Darius, the Mede, is actually the authority of the kingdom. Cyrus was the ruler of the kingdom. So Cyrus couldn't make the decree without Darius. So Darius is the one that actually gave the authority to Cyrus to make the decree to send Israel back. So think about this. This decree wasn't just simply something just happened. There was a heavenly battle that took place. And that's what the angel's saying here. He says, from the first year. Now in Daniel chapter 11, what year are we in? We saw that in chapter 10. What year of Cyrus are we in? (laughs) The third. So here we're already three years in, and the angel tells him, I've been battling this thing since the first year. And I've been trying to, I strengthened Darius. Why? Because to make a decision to release all your people back to their homeland, that's a huge thing. And there's a lot of things that can come in, in between that to keep you from making that decision. But the Bible says that this angel worked hard to make sure that that all took place, to confirm and strengthen him to make that decision. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? But that's how the angels work, you know? There's decisions being made all the time, and those decisions are affecting spiritual things. And our prayers affect spiritual things. And so we know that when you're wanting, let's say you make a decision, you come to church, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to start being, right, I'm going to be right with God and be faithful. Do you think that's as far as it goes? <laughs> the moment you say that, the moment you do that, you stir a heavenly battle. So immediately what you do is you incur the wrath of Satan's demons to fight against you and to keep you from going forward in that faithfulness. Amen? So many times, so many times I see this. People, um, usually it's right after their baptism. You get baptized and the devil comes and just wallops you because that's a public uh, testimony. You're giving a public testimony to the church. And so the devil wants to mess up your testimony. (laughs) Amen. And so he fights against you immediately uh, in relation to that. He doesn't want that. And so we also know that on our side, there are good angels, angels that God has given as ministering spirits to us to fight for us on our behalf. And that's what's happening. Now we're just saying, oh, I'm going to make a decision to be faithful. (laughs) But we've just kicked off a battle in the heavens. Amen? So here, the prophecy is, the decree's going to take place, and the devil's just going to sit back and say, oh, let's watch this happen. Immediately, when it has to, especially when it has to do with Israel, he's pushing against it. That's what this is all about. It's an attack on the people of God. Amen? And so I just wanted you to see that right at the beginning here. So he caused them, he confirmed him, that means what made it help to help him to become courageous and strong with divine power and strengthen him. That means hedged him in. And that's something that an angel does for us. And that's why I always pray. Most Sundays I'll pray, Lord, set your angels as a hedge about this building. Amen. I believe they do. I believe he does it. <laughs> like you may think, oh, that's just nice talk, preacher. No, I really believe that he sends his angels to hedge in our meeting place. That's why I asked for it. Amen? And he protects us. And the Lord sends his ministering angels to us. So I believe it with all my heart, and I hope you do as well. Number two, the angel had been fighting the demonic prince of Persia from the first year since the decree to release Israel. And I already talked about that. So it's obvious that Satan was fighting against the decree But due to the influence of this angel, the decree was made. And so when Daniel is now praying again, what's happening? He's coming to give him the answer, but who does he meet? (laughs) The prince of Persia, the same principality that's trying to keep the answer from going to Daniel. Amen? It doesn't say that's the first time I met him, but he says he just hindered me from coming in the last 21 days. Amen? So he's been fighting this demon for the last three years since the decree was made. And that's pretty interesting because that's when the battle began. When did the battle begin? (laughs) When the scripture said, the decree will be made to bring Israel back into the land. Now that is a threat to Satan. 
that's a threat to his cause and to his plan, you know? And so he's fighting against that. So letter B, I wish all the rest of my lesson would be that exciting. <laughs> but letter B, the four kings of Persia. So what we have here, uh, right off the start in Daniel chapter 11, verse number 2, it says, And now I'll show thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than they all, and by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Grecia. And so basically what we're looking at here, um, fulfilled prophecies about Persia, the four kings, let her be. So these four kings, uh, Cambyses, the son of Cyrus, you have pseudo Smyrtus. why they call them pseudo, what does pseudo mean? That's like a copycat or uh, uh, someone that's pretending or a chameleon. And that's who this person was. He was actually an imposter that looked like the son of Cambyses. He looked like him. By trickery, he had proclaimed himself emperor and reigned in the name of Smyrtus. And that wasn't really his name. <laughs> Amen. So he looked like him. So they called him Pseudo Smyrtus. <laughs> Amen. There you go. Uh, number three, another Darius there. I don't want to even say that last name right now. And number four, Xerxes the Great. And this is a very famous king. Not the last Persian king, but this is the one that the scriptures say is the fourth and most powerful and the richest king of the Persian kings. And so letter A, he was richer than all the previous kings. He had money, possessions, he had influence. Um, letter B, by his strength or force, Xerxes here, because how is Greece going to get pulled into this battle for the empire? Because that's the next empire coming on the scene is the Grecian Empire. Uh, that's the belly of, um, the, of uh, silver, right? And so that's, that's the Grecian Empire. And so um, the force that Xerxes had at his disposal and the vast amount of wealth he was able to stir, and the word stir means to motivate or to awaken the nations of, of Asia against Greece. So just think about that. When everybody said, when somebody comes, he says, I'm going to get all my friends to turn against you. <laughs> Amen. What would that do to you? Well, it'll probably get you mad, you know? And that's exactly what happened with Greece. It actually motivated them uh, for that next battle, the next thing that's going to take place here. So he led an immense army. Um, I've read different books. Well, one is, uh, one, somebody says it was a million men. Another guy said it was 2.5 million men. Either way, that's a lot of men. And um, this is the route that he took. And so... He, he, he brought these one or two million men across the Hellespont and invaded Greece. And so he's coming from this side. You can see the black line. The Hellespont is a little waterway right there. He crossed that with a million to two million men and then went around and invaded Greece, which is on the far side. They're all the way down to Athens, right on the peak. And so that's the way he went about this. And I'll show you how he did it. How did he cross? He made a road over top of ships. And so he got these men, and they just walked right across that whole river, just floating on a floating. They do that today in the Army. They've built technology like that, where they float bridges across to get across rivers. I mean, they did it centuries ago, you know. So that's quite interesting how, how they did that. But that's how he got the, million, the, the millions of men across to Greece. And... Um, Somebody thinks, well, because you have so many men, that means that you're just going to win this battle. Not necessarily. Just having so many men brought so many issues to him. How are you going to feed them? How are you going to house them along that whole way? That's a long distance. And in fact, it became a curse to them having so many men. They could have probably done it with less. But because they had so many, it was easy for them to be driven back. And that's exactly what happened. They drove them back across so they it was unsuccessful <laughs> all right you think man two million you got it i'm sure that's what they thought too <laughs> you know but it's not true <clears throat> so let's look at uh number two fulfilled prophecies about greece um verse number three and four and a mighty king shall stand up that shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will and when he shall stand up his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven and not to his posterity 
nor according to his dominion which he ruled for his kingdom shall be plucked up even for others beside. We've already looked at this uh, in relation to um, Alexander the Great. Um, he was the ruler that was risen up through this. And, and at this point, he would, they were just so angry at the Persians. They were looking for an opportunity to go in there and clean their clock. And that's exactly what Alexander, that's the leader they needed. And he, he was uh, very angry at them. And so nothing would satiate that anger except going and destroying Persia. And that's exactly what he did. In fact, he wrote a letter <coughs> to the king <coughs> of Persia. He said, Your ancestors <coughs> entered into Macedonia and the other parts of Greece and did us damage when they had received no affront to cause it. Now I, as general of the Greeks, and provoked by you, and desirous of avenging the injury done us by the Persians, have passed into Asia. He says, I'm coming for you. Just a threat. (laughs) He just had to send that letter. And so he was very motivated. And of course, with a smaller army, he went in there and he won every battle that he faced. He never lost a battle. In the short years that he fought, never lost the battle. And that was by military strategy. We looked at that last time. And of course, the scriptures, <clears throat> we looked at how that the, the he-goat with the horn and the ram with the two horns, the one is larger than the other. The, that's talking about the Medes and the Persians and how the he-goat went in and took them both out. And then out of that horn broke off when Alexander died and four sprouted up. And that was the four divisions that would take place because uh, there was no successor to the throne after Alexander. And so the generals took over the the empire and they split it among themselves in four different ways. And so Alexander, he would rule by domination, uh, ruthlessly making slaves of his captives. He never had to, but he did it anyways. When he went to a city, he took over. Those that he did not kill, he would enslave them. And so, it, not, not like some of the battles we're going to look at a little bit later, um, where, you know, they fight, they make them tribute, they go back, it's just constant back and forth type of thing. That's not what Alexander did. He went in there to decimate, and that's what he did. And that, that's not very common for a leader to decimate to that extent, but Alexander the Great had that uh, motivation in himself. And so, Josephus, the historian, the Jewish historian, wrote how the high priest in Israel showed Alexander personally this prophecy of Scripture. And there, that's been documented in many uh, pictures and art has been made because of that. And so as he's going through Israel, the high priest meets him and shows him in the Bible, <laughs> you know, what God wrote from the prophets, pre-prophesying that he was going to come. And from that, it is said that Alexander always showed favor to the Jews. And you can see that there. He's the one bowing, you see. Anybody else he'd destroy, but he didn't destroy the Jews, you know. And maybe that's because he believed. Maybe he was superstitious. You know, the Greeks were. And so when you have something like that shown so accurately, uh, you'd say, okay, I guess maybe I should be careful here. And so that's, that's what he did. So he always favored them. Let it be. Alexander's kingdom is weakened and divided into four divisions. We already looked at that, and we won't uh, move on. So Alexander's sons, they were murdered. Uh, That's why there was nobody to take the throne, and so the generals had to split the leftover empire. But of course, it was weakened. It was never as strong as it was with Alexander. So number three, I'm going to try to move quickly here. (laughs) Fulfilled prophecies about Egypt and Syria. Um, The king of the north, as we look at the scriptures here, is always referring to everything north of Israel. Israel is is the main focal point. That's why we're reading this today. It's not just talking about nations. It's talking about the nations that are in direct, directly affecting Israel. Syria is to the north. And then it talks about the southern kings. Well, that's talking about Egypt. That's the countries to the south. And so uh, I brought a map here. I want to show you this. So I don't know if you can see that. Okay, but the pink there, Syria. The orange on the bottom, Egypt. The yellow, Israel. So now when you've got Syria and Egypt at each other's throats, who's in the middle? So Israel became the battlefield for 
many battles throughout history, especially through those 400 years in between the Testaments. Uh, that's why even Napoleon said about the Valley of Megiddo that it was the world's greatest battlefield. The world's greatest battlefield. And that's where the Armageddon's going to be. You know? And so that's why it's so important because the Lord wanted them to have that key property there as a promised land because through the millennial reign, there's going to be a highway running from Syria to Egypt. And there'll be no more wars. They're going to beat their spears into plowshares, the Bible says. And they're going to travel between and they're going to talk to the Israelites. They're going to visit Christ and he's going to, they're going to spread the doctrine or the knowledge of God as people walk through. And that's, that's really their whole point in the first place. That's why God chose Israel to be a light to the Gentiles. And that's why he chose that land. Because that is the key linking three continents right there. And so that's very interesting, amen? And that's why that little Israel, man, I'll tell you, <laughs> over the generations, it has become such a spot. Everybody wants it, and it's not over. We've got another northern army coming in prophecy. We've got Russia coming through. Uh, we've got China coming from the east. And guess where they're always aiming? <laughs> right there, right to Israel. And then, of course, you've got the Antichrist. In that final battle, all the nations, where do they come? To Jerusalem. And so just what a hot spot on the earth, amen? And so that's why it's so important. I wanted you to see that. So the next prophecies we're looking at are simply the battles and the relationship between Egypt and Syria because Israel is smack dab in the middle, all right? And so letter A, the Egyptian and Syrian rulers. So what we have here, the Egyptian rulers are always titled Ptolemy, and so we start with Ptolemy the first because we're just starting. And Seleucus would, would be the Syrian leader. And we have Seleucus the first as well. So you have here a line of kings beginning with number one is what you have on both sides because of the, the empire just being taken. And so number one, Ptolemy the first, his name was Legus, was a powerful king. And that's what it says in verse five. And the king of the south shall be strong and one of his princes and he shall be strong above him. And shall have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. And so, number two, Seleucus the first. This was initially Ptolemy's commander became stronger and chose to rule Syria himself. And so Ptolemy sent Seleucus to take care of the northern part of the kingdom. But while he was there, he got this idea that why don't I just rule this and you know separate from Egypt? And that's exactly what happened. That's how this battle, that's how these battles all started, was that this, bro this break took place. All right? And so that's why it says, and one of his princes, that's his commander, and he shall be strong above him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. So Ptolemy was great and strong, but his prince, after he annexed uh, Babylon to himself, uh, that's what took place. So after Ptolemy I died, that's when Seleucus I annexed Babylon and threw off his alliance with Egypt and ruled independently. This brought war between the Ptolemies and the, I guess you'd call it the Solisade group. And so you have these two kings now, and now they're going to be at each other's throats, you know, till this is all done, till this whole empire is finished. And so letter B, Egyptian dominance over Syria. So at one time or another, there's always one side that's dominating. And so who began the domination? Egypt. So Egypt was the first dominator in this relationship. And so that's what took place. Verse 6, it says, And in the end of years, they shall join themselves together, for the king's daughter of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of the arm, neither shall she stand nor his arm, but she shall be given up, and they that brought her, and he that begat her, and he that strengthened her in these times. And so, number one, Ptolemy II, because remember, Ptolemy I has died, his name was Philadelphus, had given his daughter, Berenice, to marry Antiochus II, and his name was Theos, in an effort to unite the kingdoms. And so, they're at each other's throats, they've been warring, and now what he wants to do, let's make peace. So that's what they, what they would do, is always offer their daughter, because when you offer your daughter 
to marry the opposing king, what happens is they have children, and then those children become the next king. And so that guarantees that you're going to have an alliance for years to come. And that's the whole purpose of that, all right? And so that's what happened. He gave his daughter Berenice. So the agreement was this. Now, the problem is Antiochus was already married. <laughs> so, but that didn't matter to them, I guess. Uh, he, the, the agreement was he would have to divorce his wife, Laodice, and agree that their children would be disqualified from the throne so that Berenice's children would rule maintaining the alliance. So Antioch would have to, he would have to make this decision to divorce his wife, put her away, and tell his kids, you're not going to have the throne. And he made that agreement. He said, yes. Two years after this marriage. So what took place? Antiochus II would put away Berenice and restore Laodice as queen. Now he switched it back again, you know. And now it gets more interesting because Laodice dissed her husband to keep her as queen, and so she had him assassinated. She then killed Berenice and her children to make sure that they would maintain that, that power line. And so she fled with her children uh, to a city, I think it was Antioch, but they were all killed after they were given up. And that's what the scripture says there. All of her family and supporters and those that were used to set her up as queen were killed as well. And that's what the scripture talks about there. It says, uh, but she shall not retain the power of the arm, neither shall she. And that's why in verse 7 it says, but out of the branch of her roots shall one stand up in his estate. So the bran a branch of her roots. So we're going back to the roots of Berenice, which would be her parents, and shall enter into the fortress of the king of the north, and shall deal against them, and shall prevail. So he can't save his sister, but he conquers. And um, he returns to Egypt with 40,000 talents of silver, and move. And, and I forget there was a name that they gave him because of that, and it really elevated him in their eyes. And so uh, Ptolemy went in, took this stuff, went back, Meanwhile, Antiochus conquering whatever he can and ultimately making his way back to and be stirred up even to his fortress. So the sons were stirred up. Uh, but notice what it says here. His, stun, his sons shall be stirred up, but then only talks about one shall certainly again. <laughs> so you think about the detail. Now, did the Lord have to say that? No, but he made it very clear that he knows exactly how things are going to happen in the future. Amen. Here. And so, uh, number four, Ptolemy IV, uh, Philopater, I don't know if that's how you say it, but marched against Syria in rage, and Antioch uh, III was defeated because he was challenging his, um, his fortress and so forth. Here's a picture of him. And they would always, they would always memorialize their kings, on coins, and so you can always find coins if you look online. You put in these names, you'll find a coin for every king. That's just how they. That's how you remember them. And so this is the the Ptolemy the fourth, and so he had an army of seventy thousand soldiers, five thousand horses, seventy three elephants, and he Ptolemy he subdued, but the Bible says he was not strengthened by it. And so that's kind of interesting. It says in verse eleven, and the king of the south shall be moved with choler. That means great anger and shall come forth and fight with him, even with the king of the north, and he shall set forth a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into his hand. And verse number 12, it says, And when he had taken away the multitude, his heart shall be lifted up, and he shall cast down many ten thousands, but he shall not be strengthened by it. So why is this? Why is this king not being strengthened? Why is he not becoming stronger after having this great victory? Because he got lazy, and because he started partying, he started living a life of licentious and so forth, and, and wickedness, and the people, his own people, began to actually not respect him anymore because he just became lazy. And so even though he had these great exploits, he wasn't becoming stronger. And why was it? Because personal, personal moral failure. Now that's interesting. And the Lord knew that too. <laughs> you know, that, that just blows me away. Just the, this, the specific 
things that the Lord gave us here in Daniel chapter 11. And so let us see. So now we're going to look at the Syrian dominance over Egypt. So it flips. Antiochus III formed a large army and invaded Palestine, Egypt, and Phoenicia. And it says in verse 13, For the king of the north shall return and shall set forth a multitude greater than the former, and shall certainly come after certain years with a great army and with much riches. And so uh, Phoenicia, I just want to show you where that is. I think I have a map here that might show you. So you know, you can see Egypt's down on the bottom. So Phoenicia is, is that coastal region there on the north side of Africa and in that area of that sea. And so that's where he would go. So, so basically, sometimes these guys, when they didn't want to attack Egypt as such, they would move west and start taking some, some land over there. And then ultimately, they'd come back and hit Egypt again, you know. And so they always ended up back at each other's throats in these battles. All right. And so um, what took place here? Okay, letter A, King Philip V of Macedon and, and lawless Jews seeking to break free of Egypt joined Antiochus at this time. And so it says in verse 14, In those times there, were, there shall be many stand up against the king of the south. Also the robbers of thy people shall exalt themselves to establish the vision, but they shall fall. Establish the vision. They were trying to push something that they had no right pushing. Why? Because the 70 weeks of Daniel told Israel that you're going to be under Gentile dominion. So you had these lawless Jews that said, hey, you know, why don't we get involved here and maybe we can get back the power that we have lost. And the Lord says, no, 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 that's not how it works because I made a proclamation <laughs> that you were under Gentile dominion and you're not going to change the vision. And that's what these Jews thought they were going to do. They're going to change it. They're going to, they were going to push it forward and make it happen now. But of course, the Lord said that's not going to work and they failed. All right. So let it be Ptolemy the fourth sent General Scopas to hold Palestine, but was defeated by, Anti by Antiochus and held under siege in the city of Sidon until they surrendered. In verse 15, it says, So the king of the north shall come and cast up a mount. So here he's got Philip with him. He's got all these Jews with him. He's got the whole nations. He turned them all against Egypt. Uh, and it says that he cast up a mount. And that means that they besieged a city and took the most fenced cities and the arms of the south shall not withstand, neither his chosen people, neither shall there be any strength to withstand. Letter C, Antiochus III did as he pleased and laid plans to destroy the land of Israel. Verse 16, he that cometh against him shall do according to his own will and none shall stand before him and he shall stand in the glorious land by which, which by his hand shall be consumed. And so that's talking about how they, he's going to come after Israel. Letter D, Antiochus offered a peace treaty giving his daughter Cleopatra to marry Ptolemy V. And so this is his deal here. Verse 17, he shall also set his faith, face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and, and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do, and he shall give him the daughter of women, corrupting her, but she shall not stand on his side, neither be for him. So Ptolemy, the fifth here, the king of Egypt, is only 7 to 13 years old. <laughs> He's giving his Cleopatra to him for a wife. Of course, it's, there's a plan here that he's hatching, right? So number two, he was hoping that his daughter would undermine the Egyptian government, helping him take over. But ultimately, like the scripture says there, Cleopatra chose rather to be loyal to Ptolemy. And so it didn't work, <laughs> all right? And so that's, that's the kind of dynamics that happen within these battles. And so number two, Antiochus III begins a new campaign against the Mediterranean coastlands. There, once again, we saw that map. So he says, okay, I can't get in there right now. It's like these guys always got to be conquering something, <laughs> you know, and that's what he does. And so verse 18, after this shall he turn his face unto the isles and shall take many, but a prince for his own behalf shall cause the reproach offered by him to cease, Without his own reproach, he shall cause it to turn upon him. So, he was defeated by General Lucius Cornelius Scipio Asiaticus, nice names, who led the Roman and Greek forces. 
And notice what it says, that but a prince for his own behalf shall cause the reproach offered by him to cease. Why is that? Because at an earlier meeting, Antiochus met this general and insulted him. And because of that, this general was motivated to take him down. And so the scripture even talks about that. <laughs> you know, the Lord knew that. It just, doesn't, that doesn't that just blow you away? There's, like, there's such detail in the prophecies here. Let it be, Antiochus III returned home and then he died in 187 BC. It says he shall turn his face toward the fort of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. So number three, says his successor, Seleucius IV, was raised, who raised taxes of the Jewish people to pay tribute to Rome. After he sent his treasurer to plunder the temple, Seleucius suddenly died, probably by poisoning. And in verse 20 it says, Then shall stand up in his estate a raiser of taxes in the glory of the kingdom, but within few days he shall be destroyed, neither in anger nor in battle. And so the Lord, once again, clearly gives a prophecy of this next king and how he was only a few days in power and he died, they think it's by poisoning, but he was raising the taxes to give tribute over to Rome uh, from the Jews. And so, quite interesting. Number four, fulfilled prophecies about Antiochus, Epiphanes, and Syria. Let's look at the rise to power, 175 BC. It says in verse 21, In his estate shall stand up a vile person, to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Now what we're moving into here is a type of Antichrist. Uh, I believe very much this Antiochus Epiphanes is a type of Antichrist, and a lot of people will agree with that. I believe he's the closest picture of the Antichrist to date. Uh, number one, he obtained the kingdom through flattery, not by honor. It says he was called a vile person. Uh, letter B, Antiochus claimed to be the lawful protector of the kingdom's rightful heir. That was Demetrius, who was a child. So this guy was a snake. <laughs> he really was. And you see that through his rule, he was just deceiving and a liar and manipulator. And so what he did is he called himself the lawful protector of the rightful heir to the throne, this child. And in doing that, through his manipulation, he placed himself on the throne. That's what took place. So he wasn't even in the line to be king. And he just took it. Wow. So number two, Antiochus IV gave himself the name Epiphanes, which means glorious one. <laughs> if you want to change your name, you get to change it to glorious one. Isn't that something? Letter B, Antiochus IV, his defeat of Egypt. He consolidated power by a victory over Egypt and destroying a prince of the covenant. And that's, many people would believe that would be the high priest, Israel's high priest, Onias III. It says, and with the arms of a flood shall they be overflown from before him and shall be broken, yea, also the prince of the covenant. Number two, he formed a deceitful treaty with Ptolemy VI and was able to invade Egypt with a small army. And so note, look at verse 23. And after the league made with him, he shall work deceitfully, for he shall come up and shall become strong with a small people. Now, how does he do that? Well, this is the thing. He's lying. <laughs> the whole time he's lying, he's saying, hey, let's meet, we're friends, we'll have a meeting. He brings a small army with him. As he's going along, he's taking every town and city that he's going past until finally he gets to where he's going. These people aren't on guard because they think he's coming for a meeting and he takes them over through deceit, through manipulation, through lying. <laughs> you know, that's the way he operated. So he was able to take it all simply with a small army. So... Number three, he was able to plunder land in a way that those before him had never been able by scattering the spoil. It says in verse 24, he shall enter peaceably even upon the fattest places of the province and he shall do that which his fathers have not done nor his father's fathers. He shall scatter among the prey and spoil and riches, yea, and he shall forecast his devices against the strongholds even for a time. That means that the Lord has given them this ability to go and conquer in this way where he does it through riches. He goes and buys people off, and he starts conquering and taking over strongholds in a way that his forefathers and the, the ones before him have never done. And so that's what the scripture is telling us here. Number four, trusted officials of Ptolemy betrayed him 
and thwarted his effort to fight back against Antiochus, causing his defeat. So what took place is Antiochus got to the people in Egypt and manipulated and caused them to turn against their own king. And because of that, he had no chance to, to win this battle. He had his own people working against him. And that was the way Antiochus worked. He was just a deceiver. And it just, you learn a lot, you know, because that's a picture of the Antichrist. That's how he's going to manipulate. That's how he's going to come on the scene. He's going to play one against the other. He's going to come in on a police, peace platform, and he's just going to play it, you know. But ultimately, he's going to take them all down. And that's the Lord's teaching us. He wants us to learn from that. And so, he shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army, and the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for they shall forecast devices against him. That's the betrayals. Yea, they that feed of the portion of his meat shall destroy him, and his army shall overflow, and many shall fall down slain. And so the ones that eat with him and eat the meat that he provides are going to be the ones that take him down. Uh, number five, Ptolemy and Antiochus made plans. So this is what happens. You have a battle, everybody goes home, and then they try to work together again. <laughs> you know. And so this is what he did. Uh, Ptolemy and Antiochus made plans to conquer together, but spoke lies to each other. Look at verse 27. And both these kings' hearts shall be to do mischief, and they shall speak lies at one table, but it shall not prosper for the end... For yet the end shall be at the time appointed. That means the Lord kept them from working out whatever plan they were trying to put into place there. The Lord says, it's not time for that. So I'm not going to let it happen. So he used their own deception against one another and their lies. You know how in the scriptures many times he, he brought up a lying prophet that told a lie to the king and misdirected them and so forth. And uh, that's what he did here with these guys. So let her see. Antiochus IV persecutes the Jews. So, he returns to Syria with great plunder. Verse 28, Then shall he return into his land with great riches, and, shall, and his heart shall be against the holy covenant, and he shall do exploits and return to his own land. Number two, when passing through Israel, he punished the Jews due to a revolt. That revolt was there because as Antiochus was out conquering, a rumor came back to Israel that Antiochus was killed. So all the Jews are having a party. I mean, they're just, they're just taking control. They're taking all the authority back. They're, they're trying to get control again. But it, was, it wasn't true. This is the problem. So on his way back, now he knows these guys are rejoicing about his death. He says, now you got me mad. And so he comes in there angry and dealing, punishing them due to the revolt. And so number three, Antiochus returned to conquer the whole Egyptian nation. But Roman ships came to help the Egyptians and demanded that Antiochus stop the invasion. And so he heard that the two Egyptian brothers began conspiring together and talking to the Romans and the Greeks to keep him, the next time he wanted to come conquer in the south, to aid them to destroy him. And he heard this, and so immediately he turns back and he wants to go take... Now he doesn't want to just you know, teach him a lesson... This time, he actually wants to go in and take over all of Egypt. He wants to totally decimate, like Alexander did. And it says, verse 29, And the time appointed he shall return and come toward the south, but it shall not be as a former or as a latter. For the ships of Chittim shall come against him, therefore he shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the Holy Covenant. So shall he do, he shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the Holy Covenant. So a Roman ambassador came to meet Antiochus and demanded a response from him and says, okay, you are going to stop this now. This whole plan of taking over Egypt, it's done. Now Antiochus says, well, I need to go home and we need to have a council and you know, this is what manipulators do. So this is what the general did. He took a stick and he drew a circle around Antiochus. He says, before you leave that circle, I'm going to have an answer. He just kind of, okay, <laughs> you know. So he agreed. He was put in a position that if he didn't agree to this, he was going to be killed right there. And so I, I kind of like that tactic, kind of neat. Anyways, and so the Romans came to the aid of Egypt, uh, and they think it was the Romans. Could be several different uh, nations in there as well. 
Okay, number four, Antiochus returns home and vents his anger on the Jews. You see that? We just read about that. How he's going to uh, have indignation against the Holy Covenant. And, uh, but not only that, he shall return and have intelligence with them that forsake the Holy Covenant. So like with every generation, there was a Jewish uh, uh, group that forsook the Scriptures and the Holy Covenant. And that's what he did. The first thing he does is he rewards the Jews that forsake the Holy Covenant. So he manipulates and bribes and uses their own people against themselves to stop what he wants to stop. And in verse 32 it says, And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries, but the people that that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. And so one of the things he did, and this is where it happened during that intertestamental period, where, where Antiochus actually appointed a new high priest that was on his payroll. So at this point, there was actually two high priests. There was the one that was legitimate and the one that Antiochus had put in place. So that's the kind of the madness that's going on during this time. And so why did he want him there? Why do you want that high priest there? Because what he wanted to do is let it be. He removes the daily sacrifice and sets up an altar to Zeus in the temple. I mean, you want to get a, a Jewish man upset. <laughs> this is what you do to the temple. And that's what he did. So that's what it talks about, how that he, um, how that, um, oh, where is the scripture? Did I miss a verse there? Anyways, I'll, I'll get there. But anyways, it says, and he shall do as wickedly against the covenant, shall, shall he corrupt by flatteries. But then... They also had another person, another group that happened here. The people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. So now what you have is a false God set up in the temple in Israel. This is what kicks off the true revolt. And you've heard about the, Macca- the, the Maccabean revolt. This is where it begins. And they say it was uh, Judas Maccabee and his four brothers started this, who began fighting against this attack on Judaism, against this worship of heathen gods. They would actually start requiring the Jews to worship Zeus. Well, what are you going to do? You're either going to give in or you're going to fight. And so they began to fight. And so they encouraged the people to stand up for their faith, but they encountered many losses, many martyrs. Verse 33, and, and they that understand among the people shall instruct many, yet they shall fall by the sword and by flame and by captivity and by spoil many days. It seems like there's always casualties in the work of God when you take up the cause. And it almost seems like, am, are we losing here? But what took place is because of this, because of the sacrifice and suffering, it, it created a bigger thing where other people joined on and this army became big enough to actually take out Antiochus. And they actually had peace and restored the temple worship back for over 100 years because of that. And so it's quite something. When you just, someone just stands up and says, we're not going to let this happen. You know? And so many joined them rallying to the cause, but they were insincere. It says in verse 34, And when they shall fall, they shall be hoping with a little help, but many shall cleave to them, with flatteries it's kind of like uh one one preacher always said you know sometimes we're like like a bat a bat uh he can fight both sides he can actually when the birds are winning he can fly as a bird and when the animals are winning he can walk around with his wings tucked in as an animal and so basically what these people do is whoever seems to be winning that's who we're going to go with (laughs) you know and by the way there's a lot of people in church like that too there's a lot of the Bible says that there's tares among the wheat. And, you know, folks, you got to let your loyalty be known where you stand. If, if you don't do that, all you are is like one of these people. You're, you're, you're operating by flattery, talking out of both sides of your mouth. We ought to never do that. We ought to declare our loyalty. People ought to know where we stand. They ought to know who we stand with. They ought to know that we're loyal to the church, loyal to the things of God, loyal to the programs of the faith, whatever we're doing here. And instead of playing this back and forth thing, because that, my friend, is no better than this. And you know, no matter what, there will always be people like that. Flatterers. Amen. That means slipperiness. Flattery. 
It's uncertain people. People that don't make a decision are scared to take one side or the other. When one person is stronger, they side with that one. One person, <laughs> whoever they're with, that's how they talk. <laughs> Amen. That's very dangerous stuff. Don't ever be like that. I hope Ergy Baptist Church never has people like that. I hope we're all loyal to the things of God. Amen. And so, let us see, Antiochus' per- persecution was overcome by those with understanding, being purged and purified by their suffering. In verse 35, And some of them of understanding shall fall, to try them and to purge and to make them white, even to the time of the end, because it is yet for a time appointed. And so, sometimes it seems like the good guys are losing, but God is doing a purging, and the remainder will be white. And that's what he's saying here. The hypocrites and those that speak out on both sides of their mouth, they'll always be there. Let's make sure if we're going to go through something, let's become better. Amen? And I believe there's nothing that we're going to go through here in this church that isn't going to make us better if we'll allow God to make, it, make us better. The Bible says that we're in a furnace and he's trying us through the furnace of fire. Amen? It's a precious thing to us. And so um, the Maccabeans... Uh, you know, I don't, I don't understand it all. I, I'm not a historian. But one thing I know is they did not flatter to build up the uprising. They spoke the truth. See, they didn't need to flatter. They didn't need to talk to the both sides of the mouth. When you have something to stand for, you don't need to be a flatterer. <laughs> they knew they had a cause that was worthy of the fight. And that's all they had to say. See, Antiochus was never like that. He didn't know why he was doing it half the time. He just wanted power. It was personal. It was lusty, you know. But when there's a cause, when there's something to stand for, when there's something real that the Lord wants you to hold on to, you don't need anything else but that truth to go forward. Amen? How true that is. And by the way, Hanukkah is celebrated in memorial of this victory, this Maccabean victory and them restoring that temple worship. And so they still do it to this day. They're still uh, in memorial of that. So my last verse, finally, that's not bad. We did a lot, covered a lot of ground pretty fast. Ezekiel 12, verse 25, it says, For I am the Lord, I will speak, and the word that I shall speak shall come to pass. It shall be no more prolonged, for in your days, O rebellious house, will I say the word and will perform it, saith the Lord God. Amen. So in other words, if the Lord says it, it's going to happen.